welcome to Come Follow Me with Bree, episode 67, I Am a Child of God. Guys, we made it. I made it. <laughs> I remember at the beginning of the Doctrine and Covenants, I felt so intimidated because I just didn't necessarily feel really up to snuff with my church history, with all of that. And we made it through and it was so enjoyable. And now we get to tackle something maybe even more intimidating, the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to be completely transparent with you. I have never, ever read the entirety of the Old Testament. It's just not something that anytime I would be like, okay, what am I going to read next? Never did I think, let's read the Old Testament. And so while just like with the Doctrine and Covenants, this might not be a podcast for somebody who's really deep in the details of the Old Testament and is an expert, I feel like the majority of us are more in my camp where we feel much more unfamiliar with the Old Testament. And I am so excited for the divine inspiration that inspired our leaders to do this more home-led, self-led study of all of our different works of scriptures because it really motivates us in a deeper way to actually read all of the scriptures. So I'm excited. I'm intimidated. And I just know, even though I feel all of those things, I know that the spirit will guide me. And I know that this is going to be a great year where I'm going to learn so much and get so much more insight into our Heavenly Father's plan. Okay, so let's get started. We aren't starting with Genesis. We are starting with the book of Moses, which is in the Pearl of Great Price. And chronologically, it fits in the Bible. It's a part of Joseph Smith's translation of the Old Testament. But it isn't just correcting incorrect words. Nothing in these next few chapters are included. And why? That question is answered in verse 23 of chapter 1 of Moses. It says, And now of this thing Moses bore record, but because of wickedness it is not had among the children of men. So, wickedness. We know that plain and precious things were removed from the Bible. And this experience that we're about to read about is one of those things that Heavenly Father in His great wisdom decided that the world was not ready to be accountable for or ready for that higher, greater knowledge. In this chapter, Jehovah, who is the pre-mortal Jesus Christ, is speaking on behalf of Heavenly Father, as if he were Heavenly Father. They are one. The authority to speak in behalf of Heavenly Father is referred to as divine investiture of authority. Joseph Fielding Smith said, All revelation since the fall has come through Jesus Christ, who is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. He is the God of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, the one who led that nation out of Egyptian bondage and who gave and fulfilled the law of Moses. The Father has never dealt with man directly and personally since the fall, and he has never appeared except to introduce and bear record of the Son. This is something that I hadn't really thought a whole lot about. The only time that the Lord is present and vocal is to introduce the Son. And as far as we are aware, we only have two, three-ish records of the Father appearing personally. We have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Joseph Smith in the Sacred Grove, and then we hear the Father when Christ was baptized and he said, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Isn't that interesting to think about? I, I really, I mean, maybe all of you have thought about that before, but I really hadn't thought that specific thought before. 
All right. Moses chapter one happened after Moses's vision of the burning bush, but before Moses goes back to confront the Pharaoh to free his people. During this experience, Moses is transfigured. Bruce R. McConkie explains, Transfiguration is a special change in appearance and nature which is wrought upon a person or thing by the power of God. This divine transformation is from a lower to a higher state. It results in a more exalted, impressive, and glorious condition. By the power of the Holy Ghost, many prophets have been transfigured so as to stand in the presence of God and view the visions of eternity. Verse 1 explains that Moses is caught up in a high mountain, and we don't know whether this high mountain is literal or symbolic or perhaps both. A high mountain also could mean an elevated perspective or being caught up to a place where he was able to understand and comprehend the perspective of God. On this, quote, high mountain, Moses gets to see Jehovah, who again, remember, is the premortal Jesus Christ face to face. There is one particular part of the chapter that I really want to focus on, but there are so many things that we could talk about. So I encourage you to listen to other podcasts and really just dig deep into it because there's so much to be had. So we're going to quickly go through this experience that Moses had, and then I want to get to the one part that I really want to focus on. The Lord calls Moses his son, and remember, he's speaking with divine investiture, speaking for the Father. He reminds Moses that no man can see his works or his glory and remain alive without transfiguration. He tells Moses that his journey will be symbolic. So Moses' life journey will be symbolic of the Savior's role, going to free his people from Pharaoh, leading them through the Red Sea, which is symbolic of baptism, and then to the promised land, which is symbolic of heaven. I mean, that would be pretty crazy to hear that you are the typifying of Christ. Throughout, Moses is enabled by the transfiguring power of the Holy Ghost to comprehend far more than he would be able to on his own, which is just so cool to think about our ability to comprehend more if we have the Holy Ghost with us. And that's just talking about our general ability as we have the Holy Ghost with us to have our understanding quickened or our mind enlightened. But think about the enabling power of the Holy Ghost to the extent that you are transfigured. It's just just crazy to think about. So through this increased ability to understand, Moses is shown the world and all of the human family, and he is able to see and comprehend it all. And after this, the Lord's presence is withdrawn. After that experience, Moses' strength is gone, he falls to the earth, and he marvels at his own nothingness compared to God. Not that he was of no worth, but just in comparison to God. Now, before we move on, I just want to reference what the Lord calls Moses during this encounter. The Lord tells him, Thou art my son, and also by showing him the human family and calling that the workmanship of mine hands, that also implies that Moses himself is part of that workmanship. He again calls him my son and places his value on him by telling him that he has work that will be symbolic of the Savior. And then calling him for a third time, my son, right before he shows him all of the world and all that are and were created. So now we arrive at verse 12 when Satan enters. I want you to notice what Satan calls him. Satan says, Moses, son of man, worship me. Moses had just been through an experience where he was called by Jehovah through divine investiture, a son of God. And here comes Satan. And the first thing he says is, Moses, son of man, worship me. 
I want to pose a question that we are going to get back to a little bit later, but I want you to just keep this question at the back of your mind. Why was calling Moses son of man Satan's primary strategy? Moses' first retort is saying, Who art thou? For behold, I am a son of God, in the similitude of his only begotten. And where is thy glory that I should worship thee? For behold, I could not look upon God, except his glory should come upon me, and I were transfigured before him. But I can look upon thee in the natural man. Is it not so, surely? Blessed be the name of my God, for his spirit hath not altogether withdrawn from me. Or else where is thy glory? For it is darkness unto me, and I can judge between thee and God. I think we've all had experiences where we can feel darkness. We can feel Satan in something. And this is what Moses was feeling as well. He still had the spirit with him and therefore was able to clearly see what Satan was trying to do, trick him. This shows us how important it is that we remain worthy of the presence of the Holy Ghost. I think we've all also had the experience where we start to lose the spirit through decisions we're making or atmospheres that we're choosing to place ourselves in. And it starts to become harder to discern between right and wrong and good and evil. So that was Satan's first try with Moses. In reply to this first attempt, Moses says to get thee hence, Satan. Deceive me not, for God said unto me, Thou art after the similitude of mine only begotten. Moses also tells Satan that he is God's and that God has a plan for him that he intends to honor. He also reminds Satan that God told him to only worship him and none other. And I love what he says in the next verse. Moses says as his second attempt to get rid of Satan, I will not cease to call upon God. I have other things to inquire of him. Oh man, how many times in our life could we use that determination to call upon God? I think Satan knows that it's an excellent opportunity to deceive someone when they are feeling weary or tempted. And how great an answer is it for us to remember to be like Moses and say with determination, I will not cease to call upon God. I have other things to inquire of him. After this, Moses commands Satan to depart hence. In verse 19 is Satan's third attempt. It says, And now when Moses had said these words, Satan cried with a loud voice and ranted upon the earth and commanded, saying, I am the only begotten. Worship me. The first time Satan spoke to Moses, he sounded calm. But he's getting more desperate and more frantic. And as a result, at least in my mind, He's certainly making himself even that much more unbelievable in Moses' eyes, even escalating to the point of telling an outright lie that he is the Savior as opposed to a more subtle deception. But even though I think that it was very obvious to Moses that this evil being, Satan, didn't deserve to be worshipped, he started to be afraid. It says in verse 20, And it came to pass that Moses began to fear exceedingly, and as he began to fear, he saw the bitterness of hell. Why did the bitterness of hell become visible to Moses after fear? Where does fear come from? Was there some slight wavering on Moses' part because his fear was taking charge over his faith in God? In that moment of weakness, he called upon God and received strength and told Satan for the third time, Depart from me, Satan, for this one God only will I worship, which is the God of glory. At this point, in verse 21, it says that Satan began to tremble and the earth shook. Moses received strength and called upon God. 
this now being his fourth attempt to get Satan to leave. And he said, in the name of the only begotten, depart hence Satan. Notice that only when invoking the power of the Lord was Satan finally able to be vanquished in this moment. Verse 22, And it came to pass that Satan cried with a loud voice, with weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, and he departed hence, even from the presence of Moses, that he beheld him not. After Satan departs, Moses lifts his eyes to heaven and was filled with the Holy Ghost, which bore record of the Father and the Son. He called upon the name of God and saw Jehovah again. The Lord said, Blessed art thou, Moses, for I, the Almighty, have chosen thee, and thou shalt be made stronger than many waters, for they shall obey thy command as if thou wert God. And lo, I am with thee, even unto the end of thy days, for thou shalt deliver my people from bondage, even Israel my chosen. As the Lord was still speaking, Moses saw the earth again, all of it. It says that there was not one particle of it that he did not behold, discerning it by the Spirit of God. Verse 28. And he beheld also the inhabitants thereof, and there was not a soul which he beheld not. And he discerned them by the Spirit of God, and their numbers were great, even numberless as the sand upon the seashore. Moses then asks a pretty basic question. Why have you made all of these things? And the Lord answers by saying, For mine own purposes have I made these things. Here is wisdom, and it remaineth within me, which I think gives us a pretty good lesson. That's a pretty good answer for pretty much any question that we might not understand. Sometimes, purely because it is the wisdom of the Lord, that's a good enough answer. He continues, And by the word of my power, his power being Jesus Christ, have I created them, which is mine only begotten Son, who is full of grace and truth. Jehovah is declaring it, again, as if he were the Father, and that all of these things were created through Jesus Christ. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to verse 39. This is the Lord talking about all of his creations and his purposes. For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. What an amazing experience Moses had. And how special is it that we get to have access to this portion of his experience that was removed because of the wisdom of God? In verse 41, it says, And in a day when the children of men shall esteem my words as naught, and take many of them from the book which thou shalt write, behold, I will raise up another like thee, who is Joseph Smith, and they shall be had again among the children of men, among as many as shall believe. So this, the pearl of great price, that's what, what that's talking about. Something I've never really thought about before is the fact that we don't willy-nilly hand out the Doctrine and Covenants or the Pearl of Great Price, um, which has, in those two different books, an increased level of doctrine. Not that people can't access it, they certainly can, but we are instructed of the Lord to keep those more advanced doctrines a little closer to the vest so that they are taught to people who are ready to respect it and appreciate it and accept it. And the Book of Mormon, as as you have read, keeps it a little bit more basic. So that's just something really interesting to think about. Okay, I want to go back to that question I told you to keep in mind. Why was Satan's strategy right out of the gate to call Moses the son of man? When Moses had just been told by Jehovah that he was a son of God four different times. Does Satan do this to you? Does he call you some version of son of man? What are some identities Satan would have us focus on instead of our true identity of being a son or a daughter of heavenly parents? Now, 
a lot of these identities that I'm going to talk about are not bad. When it becomes detrimental is when these loyalties or viewpoints overtake what should define us. And it doesn't even, when you're trying to identify these in yourself, it doesn't even need to be a long-standing identity. It can be where you find for weeks and weeks, you're finding that your primary identity is founded in a certain belief or a viewpoint that you have where you are not focusing on your true identity and instead focusing on this other thing. It becomes a problem when these things are what you wear on your sleeve for the world to see ahead of the name of Jesus Christ. So first, let's start with some really obvious ones. So here in the United States, are you a Republican or a Democrat? Do you allow that to define you? What is your sexual identity? Are you gay, straight, bi, transgender, queer? Do you define yourself by your political loyalty to any particular specific leader? Are you anti-mask, pro-mask? Are you anti-vaccine, pro-vaccine? So those are some more obvious ones. So now I want to talk about some more subtle identities that we might place emphasis on in ourselves or also label others as. Now, again, these labels and identities are not necessarily bad, and some of them are actually wonderful, but they can be used by Satan when you start to identify primarily as this particular identity or role. To start with some wonderful ones, what about taking the divine role of being an earthly father or mother, sister, aunt, uncle, friend, son, daughter, and feeling so swallowed up in those roles that you feel as though you are lost within them? What if you place emphasis on your identity as a professionally successful person? What if you placed emphasis on your identity as a professionally unsuccessful person? And maybe you apply those labels to others. What about the names we call ourselves or others? Lazy, perfectionist, annoying, funny, too much, intelligent, a wreck, failure, beautiful, ugly, fat, inadequate. In the movie Cinderella, it says names have powers like magic spells. And notice that all of those qualities that I just brought up, they're not all necessarily negative. They're qualities that we might feel prideful about and get too caught up in. How many times in the scriptures do we see people getting caught up in their own intelligence? How often have we felt in our lives or seen other people in our life who get too caught up on whether they think they are beautiful or they're ugly? When we call ourselves names in our own heads, do we allow that story we're telling about ourselves to overtake our true identity to the extent that we forget who we are and why we are here? What did Satan call Moses? Son of man. And you know what? Technically, Moses was a son of man. Maybe you are super intelligent. Maybe you are really beautiful. Maybe you have been making choices that would put you in the category of lazy, or maybe you aren't the most attractive. Maybe you are a professionally successful person or a professionally unsuccessful person. And when it comes to our divine identities, our divine roles that we have been called to do here on the earth, you are a mother, you are an aunt, you are a father, you are a son or a daughter. But none of those things, just as Moses, his primary identity was not son of man. Your primary identity is child of God. Any identity, whether true or not, should never overtake that identity. That is first and foremost who you are. No other identity should compete for your attention as much as that one. 
It's Satan who wants you to focus on any of these other identities and forget who you really are. Elder Uchtdorf said, You are something divine, more beautiful and glorious than you can possibly imagine. This knowledge changes everything. It changes your present, it can change your future, and it can change the world. Because of the revealed word of a merciful God, you have felt the eternal glory of that divine spirit within you. You are no ordinary beings, my beloved young friends, all around the world. You are glorious and eternal. It is my prayer and blessing that when you look at your reflection, you will be able to see beyond imperfections and self-doubt and recognize who you truly are, glorious sons and daughters of the Almighty God. What did Satan call Moses, son of man? What does Satan try to convince you about who you are? What identities in your life are you accepting as your primary identity? over which Satan is gleefully rejoicing as you spiral deeper into that trap. Whatever identity you feel is taking the forefront, and maybe it's just sometimes, or maybe it feels like it's all the time, that is not who you are. You are a beloved son or daughter of heavenly parents. Moses knew that. He was not confused. Moses was told over and over again in his experience that he was a son of God. The Lord clearly thought it was important to repeat it, so I think it seems wise that we repeat it to ourselves as often as necessary. You are a son or daughter of God. And what else did the Lord tell Moses? He told him that he had a mission and a purpose, and Moses went on to fulfill that purpose with a belief that God sent him to do his work. And we have been told the same thing. We live in a time that has been prophesied about for thousands of years. We live in a time that prophets have seen in vision and marveled. We live in a time foretold where the gospel would fill the entire earth. Who knew about the incredible technology that we would have to make that prophecy possible? I'll tell you who knew. God knew. He has equipped us so perfectly to fulfill our mission that he has called us to do. He has equipped our spirits by sending us the fullness of the everlasting gospel. He has equipped us as a people by giving us living prophets and apostles. And he has equipped us technologically so that we can accomplish all that has been prophesied. Each and every one of us was reserved and selected to be here now. And why? We were sent here to usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ. We were sent here to gather Zion. We were sent here to raise children in love and righteousness so that they can do the same. You were not sent here by accident. You, like Moses, have a purpose and a mission that is no small thing. So when Satan tries to call you whatever ridiculous version of son of man he thinks will get to you the most, don't mess around by trying to handle it all yourself. Just like Moses, you need the power of Jesus Christ. Follow Moses' example and declare that you will not cease to call upon God. I love in this account that he does not waver. It's almost as if each time he repeats himself to Satan, he is saying, like Stanley from The Office, and if you're an Office fan, you'll know what I'm talking about, did I stutter? It just took him a minute to realize that he needed to include the power of the Lord in his command. Moses was not confused, and we don't need to be either. With the Spirit as your constant companion, emphatically and boldly declare that you are a child of God, and in the name and thereby with the power of Jesus Christ, get thee hence. Then move forward with that identity on your sleeve for all to see. Because just like Moses, you and I 
We have things we were born to do. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ.